following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. One of the great fears that we experience in life It's the fear that we're all alone. It's the fear that no one really cares about us or will care for us. Um, Orphaned infants who are institutionalized, who have not received the nurturing touch or the comforting words of a mother, have been observed comforting themselves with their own coups and rubbing their own body in order to fall asleep. One of the worst punishments that we reserve only for the worst of prisoners is solitary confinement. It's a punishment so severe that carried out long enough, prisoners will typically go insane for no other reason than being left alone with no one else to interact with. I think the youth group did a really great job in that video that we saw earlier in the service of uh, the fear that get played out through the rules of social media, especially with teenagers. In a recent episode of the podcast, This American Life, hosted by Ira Glass, uh, Ira interviewed a bunch of these freshman high school teenage girls about the complicated politics of Instagram among them. And it's interesting, the moment that a girl posts a selfie, the clock starts ticking, waiting for that first like, that first comment. And it's an incredibly anxious moment for them. But Ira uh, goes on and explains the further complications of the matter. What they're waiting for is not just likes and comments, but a specific kind of comment. They want comments from other girls, and they say the wording is pretty much always the same. Gorgeous, pretty, stunning, you kill it, you're so pretty, so beautiful. Just to be clear, they say this about everybody's selfies, whether or not the selfies are, in fact, stunning or beautiful. Then, of course, when you do post a comment about a picture, there's the whole politics of whether your friend is going to comment back to your comment. Julia says that she'll comment back, oh, my God, I love you so much, to a close friend who compliments a picture of hers. But she says with somebody you don't know so well, it goes differently. Julia, in her own words, if they say like, oh my God, you're so pretty, you say, OMG, but that's you. You know, like, you're the pretty one. I feel like that's something that I say to someone who I'm not super close with, but I feel like I have to say something back. Jane says, especially because we just started high school, so we're meeting a lot of new people. So you would comment on someone's photo who you're not really super close with or that you don't know really well. And it's sort of a statement like, I want to be friends with you, or I want to get to know you, or like, I think you're cool. If someone that you don't know very well commented on your photo, you, it's, it's sort of like an unspoken agreement that you have to comment back on their photo. Ira Glass goes on, when they comment back, do they comment to you individually, or do they group you in with 20 or 30 other people and send just one big comment back to all of you? That tells you where you stand with the person. Then there are all those situations where somebody choosing not to comment is a really big deal. 
Like, for example, if you post a picture of yourself with a friend, and then the friend does not comment on the picture, that's just cold. That is leaving you dangling. Okay? Uh, and the girls in this interview confess about the deep anxiety that they feel right after they post the selfie. It's been five minutes. Someone should have responded by now. Why isn't anyone liking it? Why isn't she liking it? My head was spinning after I listened to this interview. Uh, And it made me kind of sad that this is the world that our children are growing up in, um, of an instantaneous feedback on your popularity, uh, your likability. And actually, after listening to that interview, that podcast, I actually had a brief moment of panic as I wondered, do these same rules apply to adults? Because I rarely like or comment pictures that I'm tagged in. And I thought, am I insulting everyone out there when they tag me in a photo and I don't like them? Um, Behind all of these rules about liking and commenting is this universal fear, isn't it? Am I alone? Does anybody care about me? Do I matter? Am I valued? On a much more cosmic scale is a series of projects known as SETI or the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. For decades, hundreds of satellite arrays have been scanning the heavens, all in search for the slightest evidence of intelligent life beyond our planet. In 1977, NASA launched the Voyager 1, spending millions of dollars to send a message to outer space in the hopes that we're not alone. On board this Voyager spacecraft, were pictures of human beings, records containing Bach and Mozart and Beethoven, diagrams of the human DNA. They tried to actually get a Beatles song in there, but there were copyright infringement issues, so they couldn't get it on the spacecraft. They even had coordinates to Earth in case some alien life forms found it. The hope was that some intelligent life out there would discover Voyager 1 and use it as a roadmap to find their way to planet Earth and wave and say hi to us with their three-fingered hands or whatever it is, you know? Whether it's a baby trying to rock itself to sleep with its own voice, whether it's the rules of social media as dictated by teenage girls, or whether it's middle-aged scientists with PhDs sending satellites into outer space in search of alien life, The questions are all the same. Is anyone out there? Am I alone? Does anyone care? Do I matter to anyone? This is the fear of every human heart. But as we saw in the second movement, we are separated. We are separated. Our problem, in other words, is even deeper than we are alone. Whatever feelings of loneliness and isolation we may feel with one another, the Bible tells us we have a far bigger problem than aloneness, and it's that we are separated from God. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, words it like this, but your iniquities or your sins have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. As the prophet Isaiah points out, the source of our separation from God is our sin which is an offense against the holiness of our God. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, it says, there is, no, there is no one holy like the Lord. 
There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. To say that God is holy is to say that he is totally, uniquely different from any other being in this universe. There is no one like him. And it also means that he is perfect and without sin. And this idea of God's holiness is confusing to so many people. It's a concept that not even the people during the Bible times found it easy to wrap their minds around. This idea of God is holy. The first Christmas 2,000 years ago when God became a man through Jesus Christ was not the first time that God drew near to people. When you read the Old Testament, it is filled with God encountering people, God descending and coming down to approach us. When Moses first approached God in a burning bush in the middle of the desert, he was told very clearly with a warning, don't get any closer, Moses, and take off your shoes because the ground that you are walking on is holy. God is in your midst. Sometime after that, when through the hand of Moses, God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he gathered them around Mount Sinai, and he appeared before them on that mountain. Uh, Just like in the burning bush with the Israelites, they were commanded, don't go anywhere near the mountain when God's presence descends on it. Why? Because again, the statement was, it is now holy ground because God's presence is there. And as God descends in fire and smoke, filling that mountain, it begins to shake like an earthquake to its very core. And in the midst of that, God sends another warning through Moses, a second one. It says, tell the people, be extra sure, don't get close to the mountain because it's holy ground now. But the people are terrified. And in essence, what they're saying to Moses is, Moses, you really don't have to worry about us approaching this mountain because we're, you've, it's basically scared the daylights out of us. We've been talking amongst ourselves, and we're thinking of backing up to another zip code because this mountain is shaking like this. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 to 19, it says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. That's how scared they were when God's presence approached the mountain. Many years later, the Ark of the Covenant, which again symbolized the presence of God, will be taken captive by Israel's enemies. And when finally they were able to regain it and it was being brought back by King David to be returned to Jerusalem, Israel's capital, they were bringing it on an ox cart when another horrific incident happened, particularly to this man named Uzzah. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 8 to 10, it records, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. You see, the ark represented the presence of God, and just like the burning bush, 
Just like Mount Sinai, it was off limits for anyone to touch. But with a clumsy animal, the ark is about to tip. And Uzza reaches out his hand to stabilize it. And in that moment, God strikes him dead. And David burns with anger against God. That was messed up, God. Why in the world did you do that? So what if he touched the ark? It was about to fall anyway. What's the big deal anyway about all this holiness stuff? I'm sure many of us in this room could identify with David's anger. What kind of God do we worship that would do such a thing? I just don't get this holiness thing. Why he is so set apart from us. Why is it that we cannot touch him? These, along with other examples of God drawing near to his people in the Old Testament, builds up a pretty strong tension. How is this ever going to work? How can we ever draw near to this holy God without it resulting in either sheer terror or disaster? We can't understand the true meaning of Christmas unless we recognize this fundamental problem. How how will the seemingly unbridgeable gap between God and us ever be bridged? How is it ever going to be possible to have a relationship with somebody this terrifying, this holy? Well, that brings us to the climax of the Christmas story, that God drew near. Because about a thousand years after that Uzzah incident, God himself would provide the solution to the problem in a way that no one could have ever imagined, by sending his only son to become one of us. I think it would have made so much more sense to me if God just teleported Jesus as a fully grown man, because he could have done that. Sent him to the earth as an adult, ready to hit the ground running and complete the mission that God had sent him to. But instead, God sends his son in the form of a newborn baby entrusting him to the care of a teenage girl named Mary. And I think God did that to send a message to us. I've said this in other Christmases, but I, I really, uh, these, these Hallmark Christmas pictures always grate me, you know? Um, these are the pictures that you see on all the postcards, all the Christmas cards, all the websites, all the shopping store decorations. But it creates such a distorted picture of what that first birth, that birth of Jesus Christ, that first Christmas was really all about. He's always portrayed, the baby Jesus is always portrayed lying in this absolutely cozy-looking bassinet that it looks like Mary and Joseph bought at Pottery Barn or something like that, you know? It's like, was this really how it was? The truth was that Mary had to give birth in an utterly unsanitary, if not utterly filthy, pen where animals were kept that historians tell us probably resembled more a cave than a holiday inn. In the story of Jesus' birth, we find in the records of the Gospels an absolutely clear message that even though Jesus was the Son of God, he would not live a life of privilege. He would not have an easy road. Born into poverty, he would not enjoy the finer things in life that money could buy. Nothing would be handed to him 
on a silver platter. Nothing would be easy. But having a rough birth story or growing up in poverty was only a foreshadowing of how his life would ultimately end. Because in order to truly understand the Christmas story, we have to understand that God became a man so that he could die on our behalf. That is at the heart of the Christian message. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? The whole reason that God became a man was so that by becoming a man, he could die. God took on flesh so that flesh could be torn on a cross. Jesus bridged the gap between a holy God and a sinful humanity by becoming the bridge himself. That's why in the Bible, in John chapter 14, verse 6, it says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, by sending his son to the earth to become a man, God bridged that gulf that was so wide between a holy God that seems so terrifying and untouchable and a sinful humanity because he took our place on that cross. He took our sin upon himself, giving us peace with God. Uh, Many of you in this room know that really the trajectory of my life was as a missionary in Africa. Uh, We weren't ever really supposed to be here in the United States at this point in time, but in 2004, our family packed up our bags and we headed off to Kenya where we were intending to pretty much retire as missionaries in Africa. For five years, we served there doing medical mission work. Um, But as also many of you know, uh, in about year three, I began to develop some health problems. We were living about um, 8,000 feet in the mountains And for the first three years, I was fine. But around year three, I began to find it increasingly difficult to breathe. I became tired all the time. Until finally, I realized something was seriously wrong with my body. And I went to doctors to try to figure out what it was. And um, after the doctors in Kenya couldn't diagnose it, went back here to the United States where I saw some specialists. And I finally saw a pulmonologist, a lung specialist. And he said, your body is reacting to the altitude. You have a a condition known as chronic mountain sickness. And it's, for some people, they do fine in altitude. But for some reason, after an extended time, their body just reacts against it. And your body is reacting against it. And his biggest worry, he said, was when you start developing this condition, it can lead to irreversible heart damage. And that leads to inevitable death. And so he had me see a cardiologist. And the cardiologist did some tests and says, you know, you have some early signs of possible heart damage. And the recommendation of both doctors, the lung doctor and the heart doctor, was you got to leave Kenya immediately and come back to the United States to recover. Honest to God, there was a serious calculation in my heart that said, um, I'm willing to stay. I'm willing to stay. Even if it's going to cost me my life, I'll stay in Kenya if that's what God wills. But here was something else that the lung doctor said to me. He said, 
You know, Steve, this is a hereditary condition. It tends to run in families. And he said, how is the rest of your family? How are your children doing out there? And I hadn't even thought about that, how our kids are doing. And the moment that the lung specialist said that, I thought of my daughter, Bethany, who was around eight or nine years old at that time. And what my wife, Betty, was telling me is that as she was being homeschooled, periodically, she would just stop and start gasping for air and would say, Mom, I cannot breathe. I cannot breathe. And suddenly, all of that just came to me, and I didn't know why I didn't put two and two together. But I realized, I think Bethany is coming down with the same condition. And i got to be honest with you. Even in that moment of my willing to risk my own life, the moment I thought that my daughter's health could be in jeopardy, it was pretty much like, we're out of there. <laughs> There's no way. I can't do this. And that was a genuine struggle to God, which they said, listen, God, I could be heroic and say, I'll sacrifice myself on the altar of this mission work. But I said, not my daughter. I can't let my daughter suffer like this. I just didn't feel that I could do that. But here was the great message was that God did that. God was willing to send his own son and sacrifice him for our behalf. He did what, in truth, I think none of us have the courage to do by sacrificing his only son. We looked at this quote in last week's message by Tim Keller, and I think it's relevant to the message that I'm bringing to you this morning. If we ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. I think what Keller is saying is when you read the pages of the Bible, it doesn't answer all the questions that we have about evil and suffering and why bad things happen to good people. The Bible doesn't reveal all of that to us. But when we think about the Christmas message, it's simply this. Whatever ways that we try to answer these questions... One answer cannot be that God does not care, that we don't matter to him, that we're all alone in this fight. The message of Christmas is the message of the cross, that God has chosen to enter into our suffering, into our pain, into our struggle. By giving us his son, he was saying, I participate in your suffering and take it on myself. P.T. Forsyth says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth. A remote Look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. 
But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes his divine suffering. And that's really the story of Christmas, isn't it? It's a story that even if God doesn't provide all of the answers for why it is that we go through what we do in life, It is the fundamental message that you are not alone. You are not left on your own to go through this by yourself. But God drew near. And he did it out of his love for us. And in coming near to us, we find the answer to everything that we're seeking in life. We find in the Christmas message a God that found a solution to our sin by becoming sin himself and offering himself as a sacrifice for us. Let's pray. I think we often lament the nature of way Christmas holiday season tends to go here in the U.S. with all the shopping and commercialism and, um, you know, just all of the things like Santa Claus and Frosty the Snowman. And um, I think sometimes in the midst of all of that uh, frenetic activity, it's very easy to lose sight of what the real celebration here is about. And what the Bible tells us is that the story of Christmas is about a lost humanity that couldn't find its way by its own power. And yet in the midst of that lostness, that God drew near to us and reached out to us. And I think that's the invitation that is given out to the human race in every Christmas holiday season. It's that you can know peace with God. You can have a relationship with Him. If you would surrender your life to Him and receive His free gift of salvation that He gave to us through His cross. I think the thing to remember as we celebrate another Christmas holiday is how much we needed Jesus to come into this world and die on our behalf. And so that's just the moment of pause that I want to invite you to as we close out our service with just a a few more songs is just to reflect on that for a minute in your own heart. What does Christmas really mean to me? What is the whole point of this holiday? My prayer is that the conclusion that each of you will come to in your own hearts is that it's about ultimately my need for a Savior, my need for salvation, my need for someone to provide a solution for my um, problem that I could never solve by my own strength. And my sincere hope is that through the work of God in your heart, even this morning, that there would be a place of faith where you come to understand that this is truth, this is reality, that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. So my 
invitation to you is to receive that free gift of God and to embrace him as your Savior, your Lord, this morning. Let's come before him in that meditation as we close out our service with some more uh, praise and worship to God.